Good morning, church. The blood will never lose its power, amen? You know, as LaShawn was singing that, that chorus, I was thinking about how uh, <clears throat> the difference between uh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation that Satan would love to heap on, especially believers, as you walk uh, on a day-to-day basis with Jesus. And I I believe, and I'm going to quickly make this point, that you as a believer need to make the distinction as well. Meaning, when you fall, Satan would love to have you think or Satan would love to give you the ultimate beatdown that you will never, see, you'll never amount to. You'll never, because, see, you did it again. See, see, see. That is condemnation, okay? The conviction of the Holy Spirit is, is out of a love for Jesus and a knowledge of what the Word of God tells you you or I choose to go in this direction when, in fact, we know the Word of God and the will of God is leading me in that direction. Does that make sense? And so, so as a believer, <clears throat> it is important because, again, Satan would love to condemn you and, and, and remind you over and over again how many times this has happened or how many times you ran your mouth or how many times and, and, and on and on and on. Make the distinction. Make the distinction. The Holy Spirit convicts and gently prods you, moves you in a direction that is in line with the will of God, and that's an awesome thing. He does that. Why? Because he's a father that loves us unconditionally and wants what's best for us. Amen? Amen. Uh, If you have your Bible, please... uh, uh, it is my privilege this morning to continue in the series that Pastor Spencer began a few weeks ago in the book of Nehemiah. He and I uh, spoke briefly, I think it was after service last Sunday. I, I love, I, I really appreciate like a series or, or a, a sequential kind of uh, study. And um, so I'm really enjoying where we've been in the book of Nehemiah and uh, look forward to continuing. I mean, there, here's the reality. On a, in a short time uh, slot that we have, it really is it's, it's impossible to really get deep into everything that the Word of God, or in this case, Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah 2, and today we're going to go to Nehemiah 3. But uh, I would encourage you, A, bring a Bible, B, jot down notes. And I think uh, pa- Pastor Spencer, kind of as he does his, um, as he goes through his, his uh, main points in his message, he kind of sets it up so that you can take notes. I know on Wednesday night uh, we give out a, there's a worksheet that everybody gets, uh, but not on, not on Sundays, but it, it, I find it helpful to write how many how many when you write it down I don't know there's just something where it kind of goes from here and maybe goes a little bit further down in right so the idea here is that 
as the word of God comes, it, it, it's not just getting here. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm, listen, I'm guilty of the same thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What did we talk about? What did we just talk about an hour and a half ago? You know what I mean, kind of thing? So, so when I write it down, it forces me to think in a complete thought, like what is he trying to say? What is Schroffer trying to say? What is Pastor Spencer trying to say? Uh, and so, again, I would just encourage you, it's just, it's just a little habit that, um, that I have developed over time, and I find it helpful. Nehemiah, chapter, well, uh, let, let me, let, let's do this real quickly. Uh, in the first week, Pastor Spencer made some, some uh, uh, ex- what in my mind were just huge uh, critical points. So I want to kind of start there, and then we will, we will um, in just a few minutes here, get to chapter 3. If you would, so, so turn, turn to Nehemiah 1, Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll begin there. <clears throat> Father, I thank you this morning for our time together. And Lord, I would just pray that um, God, as we look to your word, God, as we look to your word, it will become that mirror. It will become the bread of life. It would become, uh, God, the anchor upon which our entire life revolves. And Lord, I just pray as we continue this study in the book of Nehemiah that we, each of us, God, would be able to glean uh, some truth, Lord, that would change our, li- change our hearts and change our lives. For we recognize, Lord, that it's your desire to conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, we love you and we bless you today. And it's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. And everyone say Amen and amen. So Nehemiah chapter 1, I, I, and what I do is I just jot them down on these little index cards here. But um, if you recall, in Nehemiah 1, uh, it's brought to Nehemiah's attention that the walls are what? The walls are down, right, in Jerusalem. Now, it was customary at the time, at this time, uh, because we, we do read in chapter 3 that the walls had been burned and typically when someone would go in and take over a city and plunder and so on one of the things that they would do was just completely burn out all or or some of the gates the walls themselves uh, historians tell us that the walls here in Jerusalem were some approximately eight feet thick right so let's say from here to I don't know if you can see that shiny little thing over but so it was a pretty thick wall that we're talking about it wasn't just you know a, a chain link fence kind of thing it was a it was a it was um, a pretty uh, significant structure the gates however were a, a combination of of wood and other things and so they would be completely burned out we find Nehemiah when he gets the message that the gates have been burned, that the walls are in, the, that Jerusalem itself is in desolation. We find he does three things. He intercedes, he repents, he remembers God's promise, and then he asks for God's blessing. Real quickly, I, and I think this is, this is, uh, this is key. And uh, it, it was a major point in our first week, and again, if you're here 
for all, all uh, three of the weeks, or if you're here for the first time, a major point here is that God wants to do a work in me so that he can position me to use me and do a work through me. And again, I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing uh, what was said a couple weeks ago, but God desires, God wants to do a work in me so that he can do a work through me. That is personal, okay? And, and um, I guess I'm saying that is because, and I, you know, when I sit right down here, it's important that I take ownership of that, that reality. Where, um, as opposed to, and listen, everything that I say, by the way, I'm, it's coming right back at me, okay? So don't, don't think for one minute what I'm saying, I'm, I'm beating on any one person here. I'm, if anything, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it comes right back at me. That it's easy for me to sit there and, yeah, 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 that's true, that's true. As opposed to acting on what, what that truth is. And that's, I think, um, at times what, what can happen. So, so one of the questions as we go through a study like this is um, we need to ask the question, well, what does that mean to me? Okay, and, and we'll use the, when Nehemiah recognizes that his um, people are vulnerable and he possibly is in a position to do something about it. If I take the lens and look at it through the lens of, okay, what does that mean to me? If my people are vulnerable and I am in a position to do something about it, what would that look like? Does that make sense, everybody? So, so if, for example, if you're a parent, right, or dads, let's, let me just talk to the men for, for, for a couple minutes. If someone is... Uh, on your property, let's say at your house, they're walking around, you hear something, you know something's out there. You're not going to, well, you better not, just kind of roll over in bed. Did you ever get that? Hey, I hear something, I heard something, I heard something, you know, the wife says. What are you going to do? Chances are you're not rolling over. Or if you're sitting in, it, this happens, this has happened uh, f with us from time to time, you just hear a noise. You're sitting in the living room, you're watching, and you just hear a noise that isn't part of the normal house noise. Right, guys? What's your first inclination? I know for me, and it drives my wife crazy, I go to the door, I open the door, and I'm going to go outside and see what it is. She's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Right? Well, I'm going to go, you know. And, and Right? What are you going to do? You're going to go, and you're going to take care of business. You're going to, and whatever it is, might be a skunk, might be a raccoon, might be a big dude, might be a, who, who knows, right? But let me go find out. I can't do anything unless I find out what's going on. In other words, when, typically, when you sense that something or someone, and, and possibly you, your children, your grandchildren, are vulnerable, you take very specific action. And rightly so. Again, Nehemiah recognizes, as a matter of fact, it's, what does it say? When he, when he found out what was going on with his people, his family, he broke down and cried. 
now as a believer, it's important that we look through it again through the spiritual lens of you and I have a responsibility to look out and to make sure, what? That your family is not spiritually vulnerable. Does that make sense? Okay, and, and, and you are, we are to be vigilant in that regard. Vigilant in that respect. And anything that would make you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren vulnerable, you are going to take very specific action to address it. However um, aggressive you need to be with regard to that. Okay? So, so I, I'm, I'm, again, when we look at some of these things and we look for the spiritual application, th- that would be an example. Where as an adult... I need to be spiritually, uh, look through spiritual, uh, a spiritual lens and see if my family, my people, my church is vulnerable, vulnerable in any way. Number two, and, and uh, let, me, let me move along here. In chapter two, and if you have your Bible open, let me begin in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of the king, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. So Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Okay? Now let me give a little bit of context as to the cupbearer. The cupbearer in that day was a confidant of the king. Why? He was responsible for detecting what? Poison. That's right. And at times he would sip the wine or whatever it was that was that was he was presenting to the king. He would sip it to make sure what? Right, it wasn't poison. If he kills over, chances are king is not going to take a sip from the same cup, right? So so but he so he is in that that inner circle in a position of, this is important, he's in a position of influence and affluence. Meaning that God all along had positioned Nehemiah to where he was in the king's court without even Nehemiah realizing it. We don't, the Bible doesn't really give us Details as far as wow, how did he get there? How did he get to the king's court? How did he how did he arrive there? But the Bible doesn't tell us. My point here is, or one of the points that I think is worth noting, is that God is at work in your life, even in those times when you don't realize He's at work in your life, and. God, it's God's heart and God's desire that you be that, because ultimately as we read in that second chapter, uh, he has tremendous influence, right? He is a person of influence in the, king, in the, in the, uh, in the king's courts. So God has put you where he has you at this moment in time to be that person of influence in your own sphere of influence, if you will. 
So keep that in mind because, again, we don't, there's no indication that Nehemiah recognized that, okay, God is going to elevate me to this position so that at some point in time I would be used mightily by him. No, we don't, we don't, the Bible doesn't say any, anything like that. All we know is that God orchestrated circumstances so that he had the ear of the king. No small thing. No small thing. Now, let's, let, let, let me move on with that, that, uh, that chapter 2 verse. As the cupbearer, uh, so in a, in a Persian, um, the, the Persian monarchy, the subjects, if you came into the king's presence, you were required, there was a, a couple of commentaries that read like this, that the Persian monarch or the Persian royalty would expect if you came into their presence, um, you would reflect the sunlight of the king. Let me say it again. That it, when you came into the king's court, you would reflect the sunlight or the glory of, of the king. And what that kind of means is when you walk into the, the, the king's court, if the king's smiling, you better be smiling. Okay, if the king is looking you in the eye, well, you better be high. King, you know, you you have to reflect the tone and the mood of that of that setting. If you didn't, you were. It was. It could be a, a number of things. It, it could be, and 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 at times was interpreted like if you're not looking at the king. Now, keep in mind, if you have a cupbearer that is checking your wine for poison. What does that say about the overall atmosphere of the era, right? Like there are people that want to take you out. So you have someone that walks into the room that is not making, you're the king, and you have someone that walks into the room that's not making eye contact with you. You know what I mean? Hey, I, I think that guy's got something going on. Now, now here, let me make the point here. In verse, I mean, still in chapter 2, in verse 2, uh, I took, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the, king, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? The end of verse 2. Look at Nehemiah's response. I was very much what? He was, right. Because at that moment in time, if the king is interpreting his sadness... As something other than just sadness, he could literally die at that moment. And here's, here's my point. Here's the, the point that uh, I think needs to be made here. Nehemiah, he, he senses a burden to help his people, okay? Kind of God prodding him in a direction, okay? He goes into the king not, not knowing how this all is going to work out. Again, put your spiritual lens on for a second. God is calling you to do something, and you have more questions than answers. How many have ever been there? You feel like God's, I feel like God leading me to, and I have more questions than answers. That, that was Nehemiah. He did not have all the answers. He had a lot of questions. A lot of questions. And he said he was very much what? He was afraid. He was afraid. Now, we, here's what we know, that the Bible tells us God hasn't given us a spirit of what? Fear, but of power, 
love and a sound mind. I, I, I don't know about you, but I could live there all day, right? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. Watch 15 minutes of the nightly news, right? God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. So, so let's put the spiritual lens on for where Nehemiah is. He feels God prodding him, still has questions, but still acts. He still, he, he moves forward, okay? <clears throat> he doesn't have all the answers, but he moves forward anyway. In, in verse 8, he says this, though, which is, again, telling. <clears throat> and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gate of the citadel, for the temple, for the city wall, for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. So one of the things that he recognized, or what, what we can glean from this, is that God is leading him. He, there's a little bit of fear and, uh, and trepidation uh, in terms of the unknown. But he recognizes what? That God's hand, God's in it. God's hand is upon him. I, I think that's, you know, when we walk with Jesus, there are many instances in the Bible where God told men to do something and revealed what would happen next one step at a time, right? Starting with Abram. God gave him a direction to go in, a promise and a direction. <coughs> Noah, uh, Moses, uh, and, and the list just goes on and on. So, again, that, that is uh, worth noting. He, here's, here's what I think the, one of the overall points that needs to be made here. God, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, is moving Nehemiah out of his comfort zone. God specializes, hear me, God specializes in moving believers out of their comfort zone. Okay, did everybody hear that? Because again, that's personal, all right? As a, as a, as a believer, one of, the th one of the greatest challenges, let's say, for any Christian, for any church, for the Israelites was and is complacency. I liken complacency or, or an analogy that works for me is uh, carbon monoxide. Now, how many know you've heard of carbon monoxide or you have a carbon, what, you have a carbon monoxide detector in your home, right? Well, why is that? Well, carbon monoxide is kind of a uh, tasteless, odorless poison that slowly kind of can make its way into a dwelling, many times into a home if like the furnace isn't, isn't operating properly or it's, it's, it hasn't been cleaned in a long time or I'm not, you know, I, but that's what we're told is that, that that's how it can happen. 
and I see analogies between carbon monoxide poisoning and spiritual complacency on a couple of fronts. Number one, one of the first uh, symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning, how many, how many know what it is? You're sleepy. You get sleepy. You don't even know it. You just kind of... Uh, uh. The second, the second uh, symptom is you become weak. Everybody see where, where I'm going in terms of the spiritual application here? Okay. That, that spiritual complacency, it, A, it, it doesn't happen overnight. B, it's kind of this very subtle thing. And, and again, talking to myself as much as anyone in the room, uh, it's, a, it's a thing that just kind of comes when this is maybe, you know, we're awake. But, and, and really, you can make the argument in terms of the analogy worldwide where there's this spiritual carbon monoxide around the culture, at least in the United States, where people are asleep to sin, right? Asleep to the reality of the God of heaven. Like, how, how, do, you, how do you miss that? Well, you're a little sleepy. Christians are not exempt from that process where if you start sniffing a little spiritual carbon monoxide, the thing that you found revolting in the, in, not too long ago, you're kind of what? What's the problem? Everybody hear me? Everybody hear me? Secondly, you keep sniffing that stuff, you're, you're a spiritual weakling. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are what? They're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, 1 Corinthians tells us. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty. So you have weapons at your disposal, but if you're sniffing carbon, if you're slipping into the spiritual complacency where you're just chilling, okay, you're feeling sleepy, and guess what? You're feeling like everything's okay. You know, when I, when I, <laughs> I'm not, I, I got a few more minutes here, but I knew this was going to be like, this is going to be the quietest sermon I think I've ever, uh, <laughs> this will bring them down on 4th of July weekend. Uh, but I think it's important because, um, <laughs> because it's just true. It's just true. Spiritual complacency has long been one of the greatest enemies of the Israelites. So who are we, right? Who are we to think? And, and here's the other thing. You fill a room with spiritually complacent Christians, it sets the tone for like a spiritually complacent culture. And, and let me, um, this is not a reference to, because it, it's kind of like rampant uh, in the United States, in, in churches in general, where there's just kind of a, we're okay, they're stupid, they're going to hell, we're okay, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, we're, you, you know what I mean? Like, ah, if you, and I, listen, again, because I, I have, as you know, I've shared in the past, many relatives that want to know nothing about Jesus. They have all the answers. And I'm, I, I get to that point with them, like, you know what? You want to go to hell? Go to hell. Okay? 
Do I really want them to go to hell? No. But you kind of get, get tired of that element too, right? So, but let me come back. Um, uh, the, this, the, the, so the Christian, on an individual basis, you can do one of two things. You can point at that ministry, right? Or you can say, you know what? Just like Nehemiah, it really needs to start with me. Like what would, what a spiritual complacency, it really needs to start with, with me. Now, what we've, what we've said before, and we're using Nehemiah as an example, but again, there are many others. God is in the business of taking people and moving them, whether it be the Israelites or, or the church, out of their comfort zone. All right? So what for me... And you, would that look like? You don't have any relatives up in New York that are in peril at this moment, right? There's nothing that, so at some point in time, the analogy does break down a little bit. But, but how, would I, how would I gauge spiritual, spiritual complacency uh, for me? Let, let me suggest three areas where God can move you out of your comfort zone, okay? And again, the room will get quieter as I go through these, but um, so be it, okay? Let's talk about three areas that God many times uses to move Christians out of their comfort zone. Number one, in the area of witnessing. Can I get an amen? Statistically, it, it, and this, you know, the data bears this out, that more, that, that less than 50% of Christians will lead another person to the Lord during the course of their lifetime. What? Yeah. Yeah. So in the area of witnessing, sharing Jesus, the good news, think those of you that got saved, let's say, as an adult, Right? Think of where you were when you got saved, the fire, the passion, right? God, not only is God in the business of moving Christians out of their comfort zone, he's also in the business of using ordinary people mightily. Individual, just ordinary people mightily. In the book of Acts, you know, Peter... I think it was Peter and James. They, they, like, these guys are just these unschooled dudes that are just preaching with such boldness and conviction, and people were responding. So, I, you know, and, and I, a lot could be said, but many times I think, A, um, it's rooted in fear. The, the fact that, we're, that, that as, as a believer, uh, a Christian isn't sharing. Sometimes it's, well, I don't, I don't know the Bible. I'm not a theologian. Where, where, where in Scripture? You, you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need, as a matter of fact, I, I have, I didn't always feel this way, but I do feel this way now. Like Christians, I think, sometimes can try and come across like they have all the, like we have all the answers. We know who has all the answers, Jesus, Right? But we don't necessarily know why on, an, on a case-by-case, why did this happen? Why did God allow that? Well, I mean, 
right? Would you agree? So, so we don't have all the answers, and we need to be okay with that. Sometimes over the course of our lifetime, many of those questions are answered, sometimes not. All I know is what God has done in my life. And that's what is the most powerful thing that you and I have to share is what? Your testimony. I was blind. I don't know who the guy is. Some are calling, I was blind, but now I see. So, and, and I don't know, don't raise your hand, but you know, you've been to court and you've had to testify, right? You, you testify as to what you saw and what happened. And that has impact on the jury, the judge, and so on and so on. So it's your testimony. It's not necessarily your theology. And I want to be careful. I'm not, I'm not, you know, obviously doctrine is important and all those things are important. But really at the end of the day, in terms of God using you, it's about your testimony. It's about what God has done in you. And, and just like the Israelites of old, they had a very short memory with regard to that. Remember God, he parted the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea, and not too, in the not too distant future, they're complaining they want to go back to Egypt because things are too rough. What? Right? You see how fickle we are? Where we have this short memory as to who God is and how faithful he has been to us down through the years. Amen? God is faithful. God is faithful. And, and let's take it another step further with the witnessing. God is at work in the heart and in the life of that person that he brings across your path. So it's not on you. The weight of the world to say the right thing is not on you. You are trusting God. He is at work in that other person. You are just one more person crossing that person's life. And how many, those of you that, you know, someone came to you and started witnessing to you and sharing Jesus with you, and you're like, eh, yeah, but, you know, you, you didn't want to hear it. And the things that came out of your mouth, even though in your heart of hearts, you knew, you knew that that person was speaking the truth to you. How many remember that? I, I remember it like it was yesterday, making fun ridiculing, killing me inside because that person was speaking the truth in love. Now, does that person know that? No. Did they speak the truth? Did they testify anyway? Yeah. Yeah. So God is at work. It's not on you. God is at work in that person that you work with. God is at work in them. Keep that in mind. Don't take the weight of the world on you. Just be a part of what God's doing. Be a part of what God's doing. Okay. Uh, let me move on to number, the, the, the second thing here. because uh, So it's witnessing the second area that will uh, uh, quiet a church in a heartbeat is in the area of giving. God wants to move you out of your, out of your comfort zone in the area of giving. Okay? And again, the biblical principle of sowing and reaping is as real as the principle of gravity. If I step off the step, I'm going to go, I'm going to fall. Why? Because the, the principle of gravity is at play. God has set it in motion, right? 
the principle of sowing and reaping. Again, I'm not going to go into it, but God loves a what? A cheerful giver. You cannot outgive God. The early church set a, a pattern of, of um, sacrificial giving. And we can talk about the tithe, which is referenced as being a tenth, but the reality is that's kind of the bar. That's the bar when we're talking about sacrificial, the, the early church giving sacrificially. The 10% is really more of the bar than the minimum. So as a believer, uh, you know, you want to, and we're not going to jump there, give regularly. I think it's 1 Corinthians. Uh, you want to, and, and it became in the early church, which is why it's done in churches around the world now, uh, they began, they made it a part of their worship. I'm saying, God, you have blessed me, and this is in recognition of your faithfulness and your goodness and your lordship over it all. Young person, if you're here this morning and, and you haven't started your first summer job, um, make it a part of what you do. See me 10 years from now. You won't regret it. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. I guarantee it. I mean, I, because I, I, I come from a Roman Catholic background, you know, so how many, how many come from a Roman Catholic background, you know, and God bless you. If you're, <laughs> you know, when the, when the thing comes by, right, it's, it's, it's the dollar, you know what I mean? It's, and then it comes by again. I forget why it comes, I forget why it, it happens twice, but anyway, you know, and that was it. You're good, right? Anyway, um, and anyway, you know, when I talk to uh, Catholic relatives of mine, they're like, what? Tithe? I've heard of that. What is it? Anyway. Um, all right, let's go to the last thing. So it's witnessing. It's giving. Number three is in the area, God wants to move you out of your comfort zone in the area of serving. Chapter three is 1126. Chapter three basically details the 42, I believe it, 40, 41 or 42 different crews, work crews that came together to complete the work in 52 days. 42 different crews of workers that made up everything from the goldsmith to in one case there were the daughters to another case. It, it was just this this couldn't be more diversified group of people working in their own area, yeah, but ultimately in line with the crew over here. Because what? At the end of the day, we're all going to the same thing. The, the wall has to come together to provide protection from outside forces, right? So in the area of serving, and uh, uh, this is... This is huge. There are a few things, and many of you that serve in ministry, you know this. There are a few things that will cause you to grow and move you out of your comfort zone than faithfully serving in a ministry. You can sit in church for years. It isn't until you begin to rub elbows with sinners saved by grace like you, right? How many work, you know, you, you, you work in a ministry and you're rubbing elbows with 
people maybe you wouldn't otherwise rub elbows with. Or, in some cases, brothers or sisters that are difficult to love. Don't say amen, they might be sitting right next to you or something. <laughs> or just look at them and say, amen, he's talking about you. Right? I mean, that's just the reality. And what happens typically in a church when you start moving in the body of Christ, in the family of God, who gets hurt? Who gets disappointed because, man, I'm doing all the work and he doesn't show up every other Sunday or blah, 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 blah. In other words, and they start to kind of back out. Hey, this isn't really working. Because in some way, shape, or form, they got hurt. I'm challenging you. I'm telling you, listen. God wants to move you out of your comfort zone in the area of serving. You commit to a ministry, and I, again, you will grow in ways that would be impossible otherwise. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man, men, sharpens another. Let me tell you why many people, and it, it comes to really commitment. And I say this from personal experience, so. Um, when you are presented with an opportunity to commit to something, many times there is a reluctance because you know deep down inside, I don't want to commit because there might come a point in time where I don't, what, feel like doing this anymore. Now, think about it for a second. And, and again, maybe I'm the only one that does that, okay? I think not, but we'll go with that theory. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't want to make that commitment because I might, not, I might not feel like it sometimes. You are literally allowing your feelings at that moment in time to what? To guide your decision making. You are allowing your feelings, are, is, the, is, the, is the man of God, the woman of God to be, driven by their feelings. No, why? Because your, your feelings give you bad information. Many times your feelings will give you, I want to punch that coworker in the nose. I feel like, right? I feel, that's bad information. That's bad. I want to hit that person's bumper to move them along a little bit faster. Right? That's bad, inf those are your emotions. And that's bad information. So your, let's just, your, your emotions give you bad information. So when it comes to commitment, Married couples, right? It drives me crazy. I have, again, relatives, oh, it's only a piece of paper. You don't know what you're talking about. And any married couple that is sitting in this room, you know that. You made a what? A commitment. And that commitment that you made, let me tell you something. That, as you keep that commitment, that will forge a maturity and a depth of character in you like nothing else when you keep your commitment.